Hi, everyone. Welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm your host, Alex Lewis. This week, I start off a monthly series on bloggers here in Taiwan. There are many blogs that are Taiwan-centric, and I hope to highlight a few of them so we can get a sense of the Taiwan experience that is being shared in the blogosphere. To kick off the series, I sat down with Jenna Cody, author of the blog Lao Renza. I really enjoyed this conversation because I could tell, and I hope you can tell as well, that Jenna is very knowledgeable on the topics she chooses to cover on her blog. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Could you please introduce yourself, uh, however you like, and let's get into this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jenna Cody. I have been in Taiwan for about twelve years and blogging for about ten. And yeah. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about the blog that you started, Lawrence? Huh? Uh, sure. It's actually coming up on its tenth anniversary now. So I started it on in September of two thousand eight, and. You know, I'm I'm a really big fan of kind of traditional style blogging where I where people write towards you know they write about current events issues of the day, but from a particular perspective, not trying to be journalists, not trying to be you know anything other than somebody writing from their own opinion. Mm, mm. Right. So like a perspective piece. Yes. Okay. Uh, could you tell a little bit about the audience in your community that you've built? That is interesting because I'm actually at times I'm not really sure who my audience is. But when I started it, it was really about, um, and I have some reasons behind why I started it that I'd, I'll get into. But um, it was really about wanting to express myself and not worrying too much about who read it or why they read it. Um, now it seems to be fairly widely read, read, widely read by expats in Taiwan and other people concerned about Taiwan around the world. It's got a larger local following than I would have expected for something in English、um, that is with pieces as long as what I write. And but at the end of the day, I write kind of for me, and I don't worry too much about who's at the other end. So okay, that's、mm. good. And I checked out some of your articles,、yeah. and they are more long form. Yeah,、uh, you kind of delve deep into the issues that you want to delve deep、mm. into.、Uh, but first, before we get into some、uh, some examples and such. What was the inspiration behind the name choice, Lawrence? Ha. That's actually a very interesting question that, for many, many years, nobody had asked me, and the, basically, I came to sort of think of after a few years in Taiwan, this attempt to better understand the country that I live in and better understand what was going on around me, and then write about that as. You know, making a cup of tea, and anybody can just microwave a glass of water and stick a tea bag in it. But you get a very that that leads to a very superficial flavor, you know. Whereas when you blew, brew、uh, laurencha, it takes a while. It's a complicated process. The leaves have to open. You know, you have to get the flavor just right, and it basically means trying to take a deeper look. Sort of like brewing laurencha is sort of a deeper process than just you know microwaving some water. That's an awesome、mm. name choice. Thank you. <laughs> That's very cool.、Mm. Uh, so let's talk about the blog and the、okay. topics that you do delve into.、Uh, I think they're pretty wide ranging. Well. In terms of, I, I write a lot about、uh, politics, political issues, and cultural issues. And in fact, one of the main catalysts behind why I even started the blog was that、um, I arrived in Taiwan in 2006, and just a few months after that, there were the red shirts. If you remember those guys, the、uh, the anti the the Abian Shatai. Like that huge protest. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And、um, I was 
curious. I didn't know a lot. I, I was new here. I'd only been here a month, and I only had really known what my education had taught me about Taiwan. I got a better education in Taiwan than most because my history teacher in high school actually、um, had served in Asia and seemed to know quite a lot about it. But it was a very 1990s perspective, a very pro KMT perspective, and so I was a little interested in what was going on there. And I went downtown and I checked it out. And I, I was just talking to some locals while I was watching. I wasn't participating, and I was like, "Oh, so this is anti-China, pro-China?" They're like, "Well, it's not that simple. This is anti-KMT, pro." They're like, "Well, it's also not that simple."、Yeah. So, kind of piqued your interest from there. Exactly. I was like, "Wow, everything I thought I knew about this country, like, there's so much more going on that I had no idea."、Mm-hmm. So. You know, I started reading. I started trying to learn about it, and that sort of led to my beginning to write about it. And so, it's always had a very strong focus on cultural issues. I stayed somewhat out of politics for years before I felt I could confidently write on that subject. And I also came to it from the perspective of, like, looking at. At the time, there were there. I feel a lot more blogs in Taiwan about Taiwan than there are now. There are still quite a few, but it feels like the community has shrunk a little bit. But even then, the narrative, like the stories being told, were so male. <laughs>、um, mm. Most. Bloggers in Taiwan, most Western foreigners in Taiwan are male, and so, for example, there would be in forums and on blogs posts about like where can I find this, where can I find that, and it was all like there weren't even posts on basic things women need, like large sized shoes or clothes that fit our bodies or anything.、Mm-hmm. So I kind of started there as well, like very little discussion on how the changing role of feminism in Taiwanese society affects the foreign community. Very little of any of that. So、okay. I also kind of wanted to attack that as well. Since I've become more interested in education, I've been blogging more about、uh, teacher development, you know,、um, education issues in Taiwan, and pretty much whatever grabs my interest. Okay.、Mm. Uh, well, you just touched upon the the feminist movement here、yes. in Taiwan, how、mm. that touches foreign women here. Yes.、Um, I'm very ignorant in that <laughs>、uh, in that topic. Could you illuminate me?、Uh, sure. <laughs> Basically,、uh, the feminist movement in Taiwan has a much longer history than a lot of people give it credit for.、Um, I've actually heard it said there isn't a feminist movement in Taiwan, and that is unfair and quite untrue. Feminism in Taiwan has its roots actually in the Japanese era, and when autonomous women's groups sort of started arising, and there are some very good books about this one can read actually, that advocated for, you know, there was a difference between sort of relational feminism with. You know this idea that women's equality comes about through their relationship to society and the family, or more Western-style individualistic feminism. What I find interesting about that is that that early feminist movement in Taiwan was not just, you know, Westerners coming to Taiwan and trying to throw their beliefs onto this country, but rather. Taiwanese intellectuals and a small percentage of Taiwanese women going to China and Japan in the Japanese era and talking to other Asian women who had come into these ideas and then bringing them back to Taiwan. So it was, while not indigenous to the culture necessarily, it was still sort of Asian women talking to other Asian women. I think there's a lot of power in that. 
Um, it came sort of resurged after the authoritarian era with, you know, uh, Lu Xiolian, the former vice president, Annette Lu. Mm-hmm. And um, it took a while to take root. It was very much a movement of elitists. It was elitist is a bit of an unfair term. It was very much a movement of the elite mm-hmm. that didn't really reach broader social movement status probably until the 90s. So when I came here in 2006, all of that was 10 to 20 years old. A lot of the women's rights we sort of take as a given in Taiwan, like, you know, non-discrimination, you can report your employer for gender discrimination or even um, abortion rights or even, you know, domestic abuse and marital rape. A lot of those laws were not passed until the late 90s. So when I came here 10 years ago, it all still felt like fairly new. And now it feels very normal where, yes, there is still a lot of gender discrimination in society, just as there is in any country, but it's it's more accepted that there are platforms to fight back. We can speak out and we do have those rights. Okay. And how has it progressed from 2006 when you first came until now? Oh, I felt like or when I came in 2006, it seemed fairly normal that there would be job advertisements specifying gender, for example, both locally and also, f- you know, for um, foreigners, especially foreign English teachers, like female teacher preferred, something like that. And now, I mean, I wrote about this recently, actually. Not too long ago, there was an ad for work at Hooters, Taipei, and they didn't even, they wanted Hooters girls, and they didn't even specify you had to be female because that is against the law. And there was an interesting case not long ago about, do you know the French Maid Cafe? I don't. Okay. Is that here in Taiwan? Yes. Um, it's a subculture. I'm not going to get into it. It's a subculture. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Fine. But they were sued because a man, probably pulling some kind of political stunt, applied to work there. And they said, we're only looking for women. And he sued them and he won. Interesting. Yes. And so I feel like that has really changed. Um, when I first moved here... Um, my first year, maybe not so much, but in later years, I felt I encountered some sexism at work that has changed. I feel that, you know, you still have to sort of keep fighting, but things have gotten a little bit better. Um, yeah, when I first got here, there were a lot of, there's a lot of disapproval around the idea of women choosing not to marry, but now, uh, local women also, and that has changed quite a bit where it's somewhat more accepted. And I think that's also fed into the marriage equality movement, which I'm sure, as you know, has gotten a lot of traction in the past couple of years. Yeah. Mm. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to look at um, the laws that have been passed and mm. that are being enforced uh, and see that as like change versus if you look at, I guess, like societal shifts, it takes a lot longer and it takes, and it's harder to really like gauge, right? Yes. Well, yeah. what, what's interesting about that is that like through history, Taiwan has been one of many Asian countries with this sort of cultural precept that social change has to come from social acceptance first and the laws follow from that. You know, whereas in the West, we do have this idea of, you know, change the law, you know, abolish slavery and then convince people that slavery was wrong or civil rights act and then convince people that, oh, maybe we all deserve equal rights. Crazy concept, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I am being sarcastic if that was not clear. Right, right. <laughs> and... Um, it, it's sort of the 
has historically been the opposite way in Taiwan. It's interesting to see that with marriage equality and actually also gender discrimination that's changing where marriage equality and gender equality advocates in fits and starts going back two steps forward, one step back are starting to challenge that and say, well, maybe even if we haven't reached full social acceptance, we need to get these laws passed now. And... You know, that was a really big moment a year ago when they they did the court did rule that marriage equality had to would have to be the law in Taiwan. And now, you know, the government is now hesitating on passing it and even voting against motions to kind of push forward a law on that before the two year deadline is up, because now, you know, legislators are seeing, oh, we don't have the support we want. But then we're saying, oh, but we need to do it anyway. It's it's a really interesting sort of waltz, you know, mm. of culture versus rights and laws versus perceptions. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, so the posts that you write, uh, which posts get the most uh, – receive the most engagement or readership from the audience? Um, women's issues get quite a bit. The top posts seem to be about that. And some of the where can I find stuff that I did earlier on, like good coffee in Taipei, that sort of thing um, – the one I did on doing CELTA, which is like the an initial teacher training certification, has gotten a lot of traction, although that's not really Taiwan-focused. I did not do that in Taiwan, um, but it got picked up by a lot of like English teaching websites. And what I'm quite proud of are my two – two of my favorite posts that have very high – you know, are in the top that I think are in, sort of indicative of what's popular of what I write – one of which being um, how something very specific to women, how labor laws in Taiwan make it so that as a foreign woman, even if you work at a cram school, even if you're paid by the hour, you are entitled to maternity leave if you get pregnant, even if you're a foreigner. But in order to claim that, you have to be on the labor insurance. And a lot of cram schools in Taiwan try to either pretend that's just not something you can have, like they don't tell you that's a benefit you are entitled to, or they tell you they just won't offer it to you, which is illegal, actually. Mm. They, If you want it, they have to offer it to you. But if you don't get it and then you get pregnant, you don't get maternity leave, paid maternity leave. Right. And I wrote a post about that, and that is one of my top rated posts and really brought, you know, brought this issue to the wider attention of the public, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. mm. And another one on education about Taiwan in the West, where what we learn about Taiwan when we get educated in the West, if we learn anything at all, is not enough tends to be outdated if it's even covered, is tacked onto the end of a unit about China, you know, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah, during our um, talk before this interview, you mm -hmm. you did uh, touch on how I don't quite like the masculine versus feminine view of China versus Taiwan. Yes, uh, could you get a little bit more into that? Sure. Uh, actually, one of my favorite posts of all time that has gotten a lot of praise has was called "Island of Women." And in that, I sort of explored the history of Taiwan de being depicted as feminine, which, again, many interesting books you can read about this. But, um, you know, back when China sort of viewed Taiwan as a foreign place, which it was, you know, it was populated by Austronesian people, not by people whose ancestry can be traced to China. 
they not only viewed it as what they literally called a ball of mud beyond civilization, but also they sort of characterized it as feminine. And actually in sort of not just Chinese beliefs, but in beliefs around the world, this idea that foreign, uncivilized barbarian, as they would call it, is feminine, whereas civilization and order is masculine. I disagree with this, but that was how it was characterized. And Mm -hmm. there was some truth in that. Um, The indigenous people of Taiwan, many of the tribes had, have had more matrilocal, um, uxora local, which means that the husband moved to where the wife's family lived. And in a few cases, somewhat matrilineal. I'm a little unclear on how matrilineal it really was. Um, you know, social orders. So there's some basis and truth to that. And through time... But it wasn't categorized as a bad thing, from at uh, least from their point of view. It was just China from, and, like, with, I guess, the Western world looking at that. Uh, the, the Western world didn't really come into it at that point, actually. I see. This was very Chinese, and I, it was a bad thing to them. Right. Because China at that time was very, well, they were, from what I understand of the timeline here, they were sort of in the throes of Neo-Confucianism, which is a much more misogynistic, you know, social view or um, worldview than Confucianism, which is in itself also sexist. But if you'd, Confucianism viewed women and men as complementary, which you know, does sort of go into that relational feminism that I was talking about earlier. I don't agree with it, but it is at least somewhat better than Neo-Confucianism, which just viewed women as people who should be kept inside and mm. not participate in public life and who have nothing to offer public life, really. Okay. And so they were in that sort of cultural moment. So, no, to view Taiwan as a feminine, whereas they themselves viewed their quote unquote superior Chinese civilization as masculine was quite negative. I see. Okay. And through that, like through history, I feel that that is sort of carried over to the modern day where the Chinese narrative is a very masculine narrative. Um, Masculine meaning like all about power and money and military and war and trade and like will cut you off and will take away your, you know, very I'm taking my ball and going home kind of thing. Mm. Whereas Taiwan is more the feminine narrative of we need to stand up for what's right. You know, Taiwan has the moral argument. China has the economic and military argument. I believe Taiwan's argument is the correct one, but it doesn't get heard in the international media. And actually, if that's as a writer in Taiwan, because I write for more than just Lauren Cha, um, that's probably one of my biggest regrets is that we don't get heard outside of our sort of circle of pro-Taiwan people. And it's it's hard to get people to listen to those sort of more feminine narratives. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, um, Taiwan itself, to some extent, also characterizes itself as somewhat feminine, I feel, anyway. Um, one of my favorite online comics, Taiwanese online comics, is called Momogaga. And they sort of talk about Taiwanese history through characterizing different players in Taiwanese history as people. And you'll note that 
like Chiang Kai-shek is a man. China is characterized as a man, kind of like a very civilized, educated looking man, but still a bully, a bit of an emotional abuser and manipulator. Uh, the ROC is somewhat androgynous and wears clothes too big for them. Can't really figure out who they are. And Taiwan is sort of this young, rebellious, interesting woman, you know, so even then this Formosa and she's called Formosa, you know, mm -hmm. the beautiful island still characterizes itself as feminine. So. Hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. A very good comic, by the way, everybody should read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's touch on the, uh, the expat narratives in Taiwan mm -hmm. um, at times going overly critical. I, I think the latest piece that you wrote yes. uh, was probably about this. Um, RCRT ran a Taiwan talk, actually, mm -hmm. by Donovan Smith. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Donovan. Then he talked to Todd Blackhurst mm -hmm. and um, somebody at Taipei Times, like, mm -hmm. or I guess the Taipei Times, ran an article mm -hmm. that was very critical of maybe not the interview, but missionary work and mm -hmm. I guess Taiwan as a whole. Um, could you give more uh, insight to that? Sure. Um, I actually tended to agree with the person writing the op-ed in the Taipei Times about missionary work. I'm not a big fan. Now, it's a much it's much more complicated than that, but um, when it comes to moving to another country to try to convert people because you feel your religion is superior, I have kind of a problem with that. I do understand that there are missionaries who come here to simply to meet a human need, as a friend pointed out to me, and don't try to convert people. That's fine. Um, anyway, I had no issue with that. But then he went into the education system in Taiwan. And as a professional educator, I am getting my master's degree now in education at the University of Exeter. I care a lot about this. Uh, and you put it in context, like how did he uh, critique the education uh, system? He talked about how the education system does not foster or does not focus on critical thinking, on logic, on inquisitiveness, on questioning, on investigation, and how it tries to sort of churn out obedient people who don't have their own opinions or don't know much about the world. Mm. I would actually agree somewhat with this criticism, but I felt that it came from there, – there was a lack of knowledge underlying it basically. And – where, yes, that is a valid criticism of education in Taiwan, especially exams. I just spent the last semester studying exams and testing. I can tell you from a point of learning about this that the exam system in Taiwan is deeply problematic. But, you know, he he tied it to saying, oh, because Taiwan has an authoritarian culture. And I have to wonder, which Taiwan is he living in? Because the Taiwan of today is a Taiwan of democracy, social movements. You know, we stand for human rights. We don't always live up to that. If you look at, say, Southeast Asian fishermen who come to work here, we could do better. But we do stand for it, you know. This is not an authoritarian culture anymore. He also kind of tied that into the idea of education in Asia in general. But education in Asia is, well, it only has, as I wrote, a surface level cultural legitimacy to an authoritarian education system where, of course, authoritarian leaders don't want you thinking too much because they want to stay in control. And but 
the Asian educational tradition is actually one of yes, you do have to memorize the classics. You have to memorize your analects, memorize your art of war. But the true scholars are the ones that can take those ideas, think about them, interpret them, and apply them to the real world, or what we Westerners call critical thinking. So it's not fair to say that Asia doesn't value critical thinking. Authoritarians don't value critical thinking, and the education system just hasn't quite caught up to the democratic Taiwan of today. Mm. Um, where I quite took offense to that, and where I feel expat narratives in general have a problem, is he spun that into this idea that Taiwanese then don't think critically, or Taiwanese don't have opinions, or Taiwanese don't, you know, they can't run their own society because they don't have a knowledge about the world, and that's. Frankly, and not to just dump on this one guy, I hear this a lot from foreigners in Taiwan. It's not、mm. just him. I want to make that very clear. It's offensive because, I mean, if you just go downtown and look at any one protest going on, certainly Taiwanese think for themselves. This is a country of people that told a dictatorship to get bent and actually succeeded. It's a country of people who built on their own, you know, blood, sweat, tears, and murders through the White Terror, the Taiwan Miracle, which that dictatorship then tried to take credit for.、Um, it's a country of people that is one of the most successful, imperfect, flawed, but successful democracies in Asia, where we do enjoy, you know, freedom of speech, for example, and laws that do protect equality. That you know the Taiwanese people built from a government that didn't want to give it to them. How can you say those people don't think critically? Maybe the education system doesn't foster it, but they've obviously it's there in society. Right. Yeah. I'd like to see. I'd like to see Taiwan get more credit for that. Criticize where criticism is due. I don't think we all have to say Taiwan is perfect in every way, but. Dumping on Taiwan that way is just another way of saying that you're better than they are, and that's not right.、Mm. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Actually,、uh, we talked a bit, or the, some of the questions we had discussed beforehand were about where you know where I feel in Taiwan. There are issues, or where I've atrophied a little bit,、mm-hmm. and I would really like to make the point that I've enjoyed writing in Taiwan. I've enjoyed living here, going from being an English teacher who had no idea what she was doing to a professional.、Um, but it does feel, as Taiwan advocates, that we're sort of talking to each other. You know,、kind、it's like this, an echo chamber sort of it's thing. It's an echo chamber.、Um, I hate to use that old cliche, a bubble, but it is a bubble where we all, we make a point. It's a good point. We all go in our circle and say, "Yeah, I agree. Great point." Dung, 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 and. Fine, but nobody outside of that bubble hears it. And so, when I've written about how Westerners who don't have any in- emotional investment to- into Taiwan have not been here, have not learned about it, don't know anything about it, if they don't think it's Thailand, they think it's China. <laughs>、um, we're not reaching them. And if there's one thing that I wish I could do more of that I feel sort of held back by, it's that I don't know quite how. I, I feel like I could probably start convincing those people at this point in my life, but I don't know how to reach them. 
and get them to listen. And I think those of us who advocate for Taiwan really need to start thinking more about that because we do need to make a case for Taiwan if we're really going to get the rest of the world on our side. So yeah, it's kind of a it's a kind of a public relations sort of thing. You have yes. to make sure that your that your message is heard and exactly and noted. Yes, instead of just being, I guess. Uh, taking for granted sort of we're like you know yeah. just let somebody else handle that narrative for you exactly yeah. and i do feel that the taiwanese government they try but i'm not sure they're also they're quite reaching the number of people they need to be reaching and yes we are up against a huge propaganda machine in the united front from china who is trying to control the global narrative again that whole masculine feminine you know trying to control versus trying to make the moral case and you know, we, we need to do something about that. And it's hard to do from our little island in the Pacific where it feels like we're reaching an audience. But let's be honest, we're not. We're really just talking to ourselves. Yes. Um, hmm. A point I made not long ago at a screening of Metal Politics Taiwan, which is a documentary about Lin Changzuo, Freddie, the, the metal singer. I have a huge crush on him. So I don't know if you should put that on the air. Um, oh, it's going on there. Oh, great. I have a huge crush on Freddie. Okay. Uh, my husband is fine with this, by the way. Um, oh, that's good. I don't want to put you on blast or anything. No, it's okay. fine. Anyway, I, I made the point that there are non-Tibetans who care about Tibet. There are non-Palestinians who care about Palestine. There are very few non-Taiwanese, you know, and or people, people without emotional investment in Taiwan who care about Taiwan. And that's something we need to change, especially to reach the left in the West. And we're not doing it. Uh, so how has your perception shift um, since you, when you first came here in 2006 until mm. now? Um, I guess just towards Taiwan and just as a whole, like throughout life. Okay. Um, well, when I first came to Taiwan, because of my education, um, I, had, I didn't learn very much about Taiwan in university. It just wasn't touched upon and I didn't know to ask about it. Um, was from, you know, what that really great history teacher I had in high school had talked about. And that was the mid-90s. So I came to Taiwan thinking the narrative was ROC versus PRC and that, yes, the KMT was corrupt, but they were better than the communists. Now, since coming here, like when I came here, it really shocks me now to look back and realize I didn't know when I first moved here about 228 the white terror, the authoritarian era, even the Japanese colonial era. And that's really sad. And that's a failure of education to some degree. And my perception of Taiwan has shifted so much from this concept of the ROC and the ROC versus the PRC to this conception of Taiwan. It's helped me a lot in terms of figuring out the difference between Patriotism, which I view as very jingoistic, I'm not a naturally patriotic person, um, versus caring about a place and a people and a cause because of due to shared values, freedom, democracy, equality, human rights. So I care about the concept now of Taiwan due to these shared values, and I don't feel a great need to bang the patriotic drum of the ROC, yet I strongly believe in the idea of nationhood for Taiwan. Mm. Okay. And uh, how has Taiwan, living in Taiwan, shaped you as a person? Um, I think it's made me 
much more open-minded. I've had, I've changed a lot in terms of how I approach certain things. I've always been an opinionated, somewhat argumentative, very stubborn, very direct person. Um, partly that's just who I am. Partly I'm a New Yorker. That's how we are. But it's at least made me consider and accept that there are other ways of fighting those battles. I may or may not take that advice to heart at all times, but I do sometimes see, yes, there are other ways of doing things and that, you know, for example, I've come to really understand and appreciate the art of saying no without saying no, whereas I might have complained about that several years ago. So you say no without saying no. Yeah. Do you feel like you were kind of pressured into that by, I guess, society? Because it's not like okay to say, mm -hmm. just straight up say no? No. I came to it on my own. I was like, oh, this really does. As long as everybody is in that very high context culture idea of we know what you mean by what you say, it does help preserve some sort of social cohesion or social nicety that directly saying no doesn't always. But there is, I will say, and I see this in the young activists um, in Taiwan, there is a time to just straight up say no. And I do think that that is understood. And if that were not understood, we wouldn't see the very vibrant social movements that we do. Okay. Mm. Uh, so what, is the, what does the future hold for you? Um, I would like to be a citizen of Taiwan. I would like to stay. Um, I People talk about Taiwan as being the ghost island. I see what they mean. It Career opportunity-wise, I probably would be further along in my career if I had left. But let's be perfectly honest, nobody really stays in Taiwan for the money. <laughs> and that doesn't not mean... Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. um, that doesn't mean we, both locals and, you know foreign residents deserve higher salaries. I believe locals and foreign residents, there should not be a salary differentiation, but locals need to be earning more um, rather than foreigners earning less. In any case, despite that, I've come to really care about Taiwan and I'd like to stay. However, I, I mean, I can't give up my American nationality because I do have family obligations back in the West. I do have family members who might need me. I do need to keep that. Where, But dual nationality is just not a possibility right now due to these laws, the immigration laws, which what really angers me actually is these laws were written in the 20s in China. They weren't written in Taiwan by the Republic of China and then were imposed on Taiwan by this Chinese governmental system and don't suit Taiwan as the nation it is today. So... I'm trying to sort of fight to change that, to elite, get rid of the double standard where Taiwanese can be dual citizens of other countries, but foreign residents can't be dual nationals of Taiwan. That's not right. And then myself hopefully get that dual nationality. I'd like to get my doctorate of education. Um, in fact, I'm partly doing that so that I can eventually apply for dual nationality and hopefully use that to just fight for a better country as an ally. In fact, one of the things I think Taiwan has also taught me, which I think is very important now that I'm bringing it up, is being an ally and how to be an ally and how to fight for something I believe in, fight for Taiwan. But also knowing I am a foreign resident here, I was not born into this culture. There is a point at which it's not my story. So support where I can, fight where I can, but also know when to 
stay in a supporting role and let people more involved or not not involved people more when to let locals fighting for their own country sort of take the front seat and I'm there when I'm needed. So I'd like to continue to do that and continue really fighting for professionalism and education through becoming a professional myself, fighting for gender equality through writing about gender issues and uh, feminist issues. And, you know, I'd like to retire to Tainan and wear a bunch of jade jewelry and hang out outside and talk about politics with old ladies. And that sounds nice. Very cool. Mm. All right. Jenna, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. A big thank you to Jenna Cody, author of Lauren's Ha, for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please check out Taiwan This Week. The show, run by my colleague Gavin Phipps, runs every Friday and covers the top news developments from the past seven days. And that's it for Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis. Thank you.